I'm Jonathan Hirsch, and this is Arrivals. Stories of migration, transformation, and change. The program that explores what we do when what we've done is a thing of the past. Felix Niels is an 86-year-old retired administrative judge. He is gentle and deliberate in his manner of speaking and stands a towering six foot six inches tall. You wouldn't know by talking to him, but Felix hardly spoke for the first 14 years of his life. He knew that he was different from most people. And across many states and decades, from a small subdivision on the border of the Everglades Swamp to a rural college town in Idaho, Felix was in search of answers. And today on Arrivals, a man's quest for a name. My name is Felix Niels. Originally, I'm from Florida, born in Jacksonville, reared in both Jacksonville and in Miami, primarily in the Everglades section, a part outside of Miami. You had blacks, you had Seminole Indian, and in certain areas you had what we call poor whites. And everybody was grappling for the same dollar, so to speak. Being black in Miami at that time, if you wanted something, you had to do it yourself. For example, if you became ill, you went to the black drugstore and, and talked to the black man that ran the drugstore. There was no doctor. I don't know of any doctor, white doctor, that treated black patients when I was a child. I was a loner. Um, my favorite activity was to take a blanket, throw it up in the air, let it fall to the floor. I had all these marbles, colored marbles, different colors. And I would build these cities and worlds with different people with these marbles and these crevices and this blanket. And that was my world. And they got so concerned, kind of pushed me out to play with other children. They took the marbles from me. I was miserable when they pushed me out to play with other children, but I was happy when I was playing with myself. Anyway, they took the marbles from me, but then I discovered that I didn't need the marbles as long as I had the blanket. Then they took the blanket from me, then I discovered that I didn't need the blanket or the marbles. I could still build my cities. My mother worked on uh, Miami Beach. And she asked me to come over to the beach to meet her 
And the only way I could do that was to take a bus from Miami onto Miami Beach. When I got on the bus, I would pay, walk to the back of the bus, sit on the back of the bus, the last seat. If there was a seat, if there was no seat on the back of the bus, I would stand because all the other seats were for white passengers. The white passengers would board the bus first, then the black passengers would get on last. I got on the bus, put my money into the collector, and then attempted to walk past the uh, white passengers to get to the back of the bus. What I didn't realize is that when the a bus was filled with white passengers. You did not walk through and touch white passengers. You got off the bus, walked to the back of the bus, got on the bus at the back so that you would not have to touch white passengers. Not knowing that, I tried to make my way through the white passenger pack to the back of the bus. In doing that, of course, I had to touch white passengers. As I brushed past one white female, she spat in my face. I continued walking to the back of the bus. When I reached the back of the bus, I noticed the black passengers all looking down. And from the comments that had been made by the passengers, white passengers, as I was trying to get through them to get to the back of the bus, I knew something was out of ordinary or wrong. I didn't know what. When I arrived in Miami Beach and told my mother the story when she met me, she cried. I did not know why she cried at that time. I did not understand it emotionally or intellectually. It was then that I started to put things together. I did not react quite like a lot of other people did to situations. So I would watch people, and when a person acted in a certain way, what they would call anger, or happiness, or smiling, or yelling, or crying, that face would go on to an emotion of what they were feeling. And then I would then try to approximate that reaction so I could fit in. This became a game, really, with me. We might call it a game of survival. What I remember most about high school, in which, I've, in fact, I wrote a poem about those days in which I say, thank you, white school children. And I was thanking the white school children for the books that I got when I was in high school. See, we only got the used books that white students had used in their school. And you'd get, they had, we'd have what you would call a book day when you'd meet school, and you would be issued these books. And I'd be, I used to be very happy. I thought, oh boy, I'd be getting some books. I'm getting books. The white school children knew the books were being sent to, quote, the niggers. So what they would do is they would tear out the answers, tear out the pictures, and write little notes like, guess what this looks like, nigger? Guess the answer, nigger. 
And so the books would not have any answers or pictures. And I had such great time guessing and finding the answer. <laughs> and so I wrote, thank you, white school children, when I got the books. At, at that time, people did, they was, they had, had not discovered the so-called new words for these things. So it was, you were touched, you were moronic, backwards, uh, disabled. Those were the words that were used mostly. And you were pretty much left alone, as long as, you did, as, long as it wasn't violent a violent type of disability, so to speak, then you were pretty much left alone to do and to get along the, in the way that you could. I decided I'm going to go to school, but I wanted to go someplace as far from the East Coast as I could get. So I wrote a number of colleges, and I was accepted by some all the way to California. I bought a train ticket to California, stops along the way. When I got to Idaho, I had less than $2 in my pocket. So I knew I had to get off the train here. If I didn't go to school, I had to at least get a job because I had some money left to eat even. There was a small coffee shop. Thought I'd go in and have a, spend part of my dollar and have a donut and some coffee. The woman took one look at me, ran to the back of the place, and this guy comes out and says, what do you want? I says, coffee. He says, we don't serve Negroes here. Okay. I said, you have directions. He says, well, where are you going? I said, out of state college. He said, oh! Came out, put his arms around me. I'm 6'6", six, six, don't forget. He said, you must be going to play basketball. Well, you go over here, you go over there, you go over here. He gave me directions to the college. So I went to the college. It's pretty cold in Idaho in September. This was September, the beginning of the school year. Man drove up in an old Ford, got out. Fairly young white guy, I would say about 40, 45. Walked up and says, hi. I said, hi. He says, new student? I says, well, I don't know. I don't have any money. He says, well, come in, let's talk. So he opened up the building, which was welcomed, because it was warm in the building. He sat me down and he started to talk. He was good. He got me so interested in the conversation and pulling things out of me with questions that I hadn't noticed that the building had become alive with people. People were all over the place and things were opening up. At the end of my story, he looked at me and says, you know, we have six blacks on campus. They're all crack attack athletes. He says, I've been looking for a black student. You just might be it. He says, I'm going to write it to you on credit. I'm president of the college. 
America has been a nation of terror for blacks, believe me. Even nobody likes to say this or think it. But if your every waking moment has to be concerned about what somebody else thinks of you, that's terror. Can I work today? Can I eat today? Can I drink today? That's terror. The Ku Klux Klan was so strong there that in certain towns, the phone book would have a big K behind the names of each person who's a member of the Klan, so you could reach them right away, even the phone book. The Klan knew who I was all the time. One evening on my way to work, this car pulled up beside me, and there were four white guys in the car, and the man in the front seat, passenger side, had a gun in his hand and says, nigger, and pointed the gun at me and he's shaking it and just talking. And I noticed the gun was the same caliber and the same gun used by the Italians in World War II. And it's a trick to that gun. The trick to the gun was if you put it on safety and cock it, it shoots. So people would be cleaning the gun and forget they had it, and they would put it on safety and they think it's safe and they'd cock it and shoot themselves in the leg, et cetera. So I said to him, I said, be very careful, don't shoot yourself with that gun. I said, let me, let me show you. So he handed me the gun. And the people in the car almost went wild. Don't tell that nigga your gun. What? I said, don't worry. So I took the clip out, handed him the clip, took the bullet out of the chamber, handed him the bullet, and I said, now let me show you. So I showed him how you cock it and the hammer would go forward, etc. I said, so be very careful. Then I handed him the gun. I said, oh, and I says, can we make a, a pack here? I walk this way to work, and I walk this way coming home at about 2 in the morning, so you can see me any day you want to. So, from that day to the time I left, I never called again. You control what you can control, and what you can't control, you try to handle the way you handle it. it it's, uh, being scared of it is not going to solve it. Foundation of one of the most foremost psychiatric research centers in the world. People would wait for years, loud around the world, to get in. I wanted to go to Menegas. I'm still have something that no one has got given a name to. I go to Menegas and I ask to see Dr. Menegas. You are assigned a psychiatrist, usually a student. Her name, Dr. Wilkinson, and we got along famously together. And on this particular occasion, she was saying, you know, we've decided, here's the, here's the symptoms of what you have. And people call it autism.
Well, no, I was elated to, to find out something, some kind of word, rather than we don't know, or it could be schizophrenia, or it could be this, or it could be that, always a combination of these five things. You got all of them, rather than one of them. So I was elated to know that there was some recognition. My understanding had a name now. You've heard the expression, and it's, you're wired differently. Even while in college, regardless of what I had done, what I'd become part of, I was still Felix the Different. Special thanks to Felix for sharing his story. Today's episode of Arrivals was written, produced, and recorded in high-rises and railroad apartments from the Hudson to the East River, but mostly in the lovely East Williamsburg neighborhood of Brooklyn, New York by me, Jonathan Hirsch, along with Nora Lind and Felice Niels. If you like what you've heard today, please consider leaving us a review on iTunes. You can find a link at the top of our website. A We also release a microcast featuring outtakes, extras, and other points of interest from the Arrival show called En Route, which you can find there as well. Arrivals is a proud and founding member of The Herd, an audio collective of six independent shows from across North America. And one of the shows on The Herd you have to check out is Anxious Machine a podcast about how we're all affected by technology. On the most recent episode, host Rob McGinley Myers tries to figure out why his older brother Scott hates computers and the internet, even though the internet answered a question Scott had had since the day he was born. So this is more, more of a personal question, but and so if, you're not, if you don't want to talk about this, you don't have to at all. But... Um, you. You had an experience of looking someone up on the internet when you found your biological mom, right? Yeah. Find Anxious Machine and all the other herd shows at our website, theherdradio.com, spelled H-E-A-R-D radio.com. I'm Jonathan Hirsch. Thank you for listening. And until we meet again, may you wind up where you need to be. (laughs) 